I think uh, Sotni's brilliance is in seeing that meditation practice, instead of being a place to hide from these things, can be a place where you deal with them. Mm. Right. Why we meditate. Yeah, that's there one good go. reason. Hey everyone, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling with a very old friend, Danny Goldman. Danny, welcome. To Raghu, the show. it's always a pleasure to do anything with you. <laughs> Same here. We we've known each other an awfully long time. We were in Much India too together. Long. Yes. Maybe fifty years. Over. Yeah. Don't over. think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was thinking about that actually. Well, first of all, Danny. For those of you, uh, Danny's been on Mind Rolling and uh, oh. over the years. And uh, what I wanted to do today was highlight a book that came out last year uh, that Danny and Sokni Rinpoche, a great uh, meditation teacher, uh, wrote together. And uh, somehow I had just come across it in the last month or so. And then I got a copy and I was like, wow, okay, we got to talk about this. Because what I try and do here with this podcast is really give people a chance to have information that just really helps balance them on a day-to-day basis and brings them more into unity. And uh, this has chock full of great, great information, teachings, and so on. Um, So, uh, of course, Danny is... uh, has uh, boy back in the day was a New York Times science writer, right? You were writing yeah. and yeah. Uh, and has written many books, uh, particularly. And I still go ahead and say to people, get emotional intelligence, okay, Danny's book, because it is extremely efficacious for helping all of us on that subject because uh, we all have that issue uh, one way or the other. We all have emotions, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, anyhow, but Danny, I was thinking about when we came back from India, Mm. way back in the day, uh, we, we, I just, it just, the image appeared in my mind. Mm. Somehow we ended up at my father's horse farm just over the Vermont border in Quebec, Correct. where I'm from, Montreal. And we, with our partners, there was three couples, uh, we all decided, okay, so we'll stay here for the summer. And so what we did was we moved everything out of that house because my father had gone to India to, to uh, be with uh, Neem Karoli Baba, with Maharaji. And we moved everything out. We were living on the floor because we were trying to recreate. We didn't want to lose that India vibe, so we recreated it here, and you know, in in that uh, at farmhouse. Actually, you remember those days, my God. I remember. In fact, my oldest son was born at that farm. That's farmhouse. right. We had Govinda. several babies born. Yeah, Govindas. Yeah, then, uh, yeah, um, which made him a Canadian citizen, which is cool. Uh-huh. Oh, he still got that duel, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and my other recollection that appeared to me uh, in brilliant color, another mm-hmm. of our satsang who was there, Mirabai Bush, 
Sure. Uh, and she was having a baby as well. And in the middle of it, uh, oh my God, this baby is breech. What do, and, and the, um, I guess the, the uh, nursemaid or whatever, uh, doula could not come. It was just us in the room. And I, I'm sure you remember this going, okay, well, we have to get the Chicago manual, fireman's manual about how to deliver a baby. And there's you, Danny, sitting there reading and, and instructing John Bush, the husband, <laughs> on what to do, what to, do. to turn that baby yeah. around. It was, it was kind of crazy. What had happened was that uh, because my then wife, Anasuya, had had no problem having a home birth, yeah. Mirabai, months later, thought, well, I'll do it too. She had gone to a local obstetrician who actually saw that it was breech birth, but didn't say anything because he assumed he'd be handling it in a hospital. Oh, I but, didn't know, man. Yeah, but instead, uh, we foolish young hippies were having a home delivery. And breech birth is a very high-risk birth, even in a hospital. Hmm. But miraculously, Owen to this day is just fine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he has a child of his own. So I think it, it was successful. It, yeah, yes. it all worked out. It Miraculously. Worked out. Yeah, but uh, mm -hmm. we were something. I mean, uh, talk about uh, either very courageous and a little bit dumb at the same yeah. time. Right? I, I would say kids don't try this at home. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so... When I said, I think before we got on, you know, I was able to familiarize myself a little bit more with Tsokni Rinpoche, great, great yes. uh, teacher. And I know others of us in the in our Neem Karoli Baba satsang have oh. taken teachings from him. Yes. I didn't quite know how far back you, you go with him, but I think, you know, it'd be great if you could just tell the uh, listeners... Just what this family is about with the Tulku Urgen well, starting there. Yes, and I actually met Sokni Rinpoche the day he came to America. I was attending a retreat that was put together by another member of our satsang, uh, Suryadas. Mm. Rangas came, uh, and it was at a, a Zen center that he had rented in uh, the Catskills. Sokni flew in because he wanted to get some teachings from the Lama that Surya had brought there, named Yoshu Ken. Yoshu Ken was a very famous, very uh, highly evolved Lama. And uh, Sokni um, became a friend from that time on. I then started arranging uh, retreats for him in America. Mm. And he came, you mentioned his family. His family is extraordinary. Yeah, his father, really. Tulka Urgen Rinpoche, was one of the most renowned meditation masters to come out of Tibet. Uh, and he had four sons, each of whom are recognized reincarnations or Tulkus, one of them being Sokni Rinpoche, another being Choki Nima Rinpoche, who I've also studied with, who's remarkable. Still another is Mingyur Rinpoche, who has a fantastic program, uh, online program. Uh, and then Choling Rinpoche, who uh, recently passed away. Oh, I didn't but his know that. Son, yeah. His son, oh. Pakchok, 
has become a teacher in his own right. Hmm. So uh, there's something going on in that family. I don't know what, but it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Sokni has become a very close friend. He's visited with us pretty much every year for hmm. a long time. Hmm. And uh, he, I had done a book with an, another friend, uh, Richard Davidson, who's a neuroscientist at Wisconsin, where we reviewed all the main findings on meditation. That book is called Altered Traits. And I gave a talk on that at uh, Sotany Rinpoche's invitation at a retreat. And he said, you know what? Afterward, he said, uh, this would be a great book to put together meditation instruction, which he provided for our book, Why We Meditate, with some of the scientific findings, which I provided. Uh, and that's, that's the book you have today, Why We Meditate. Mm. It's really how to meditate. Uh, yeah, I want to. I have a comment about that, uh, but I want to say to everybody out there, uh, there's a. Uh, it's a biography, autobiography, I think, of uh, Toku Urgen Rinpoche. Bl Brilliant Splendor is that Blazing it? Splendor? Blazing Splendor. It's a book I edited actually. Oh, uh, now this is interesting. Uh, in that tradition, humility is a great virtue, and the more evolved you are, the more humble you are. So. Uh, Tilke Ergen's longtime translator, Eric um, Pema Kunsong, who's a Danish guy, uh, said to Tilke Ergen, you know, I think we'd like to write your biography. And that's a tradition in, in Tibetan uh, lineages. And Tilke Ergen says, oh, I, I have no accomplishment. There's nothing to write about. I've done <laughs> nothing interesting in my life. But Eric was very clever. He said, well, then tell me about the masters you met. In Tibet. He said, Oh, I can do that. So the book Blazing Splendor is really Tilka Ergen's account of the masters in his family, starting with the first trolling Rinpoche, who was what's called a finder of termas, of lost mm. teachings. He founded a, a lineage, the Cholling lineage. Cholling's daughter, who I think is the grandmom of Tokorugian. She was a great meditator. Uh, her sons, who were teachers of Tokorugian, and many, many other amazing lamas that he knew about or uh, met over the course of a lifetime in Tibet. It's a great book, Blazing Splendor. Really great book for anybody. And we'll put this in the show notes so you can easily sure. find it. But for anybody interested at all in uh, Tibetan spirituality if you in the most general sense but um the the combination of wisdom and humility and joy and mm. um not taking oneself too seriously right. all of it is is really something else i mean um now why me why we meditate i don't know uh, this book, yes, it has a, a lot around meditation. But sure. what struck me, and, and, and the subtitle is The Science and Practice of Clarity and Compassion. By the way, here's the book. Thank you. And uh, it has so much in it dealing with the stuff we all uh, deal with on a day-to-day -day basis around neurotic tendencies, habitual patterns, um, the perspective that we see our lives and uh, and basically fool ourselves a lot mm -hmm. in terms of our projections and so mm -hmm. on. 
I mean, it has so much of that. And, uh, you know, I love uh, this story uh, Sokni tells about. He's somewhere, I forget where, maybe in Singapore or something, but he's just watching TV in his hotel room. And he sees this ad, you know, these two shiny people, you know, with a product, which turns out to be a, um, a, a computer, an iPad type thing, I think, you know. And he ends up getting it. <laughs> and he, he tells the whole story of how all of this thought process got followed through by virtue of being sucked into this, you know, this, this commercial yeah. world. And then in the end, he takes it, I think, on, on a trip through some very remote place. And, uh, and of course, the whole thing falls apart. <laughs> uh, it's so great. So great. Um, but uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about Danny. Uh, just right at the very uh, beginning of the book, I think at, uh, he talks about um, how he was teaching meditation in a certain way. And uh, he found that... Um, what was his students weren't really getting it i think because it it just they were in, they were absorbing this in a very intellectual way and it wasn't hitting into the core of their being can you talk about well, that really yeah actually uh, as he tells it it's really a difference between the traditional asian um, people he was used to teaching Tibetans, mm. Nepalis, uh, and Westerners, and those who are uh, kind of engrossed and caught up in modern life, fast pace, lots of things to do, lots of worries, lots of anxieties, lots of stress. Um, and he realized that people in the West would do better if he would address the things that we ruminate about, the things that keep us preoccupied, the things that get in the way when we meditate. And I have to say, uh, you know, he, as I mentioned, he often uh, yearly would come and stay with us for a few days. And one of the things he did, he's a voracious learner, was he talked to my wife Tara, Tara Bennett-Goleman, mm. uh, about a book she had written called Emotional Alchemy which is about the most common uh, neurotic patterns that people have. And he realized that he would do better in reaching his Western students if he addressed these habitual patterns, emotional patterns, that get in the way of our, you know, our meditation, our relationships, our lives. And so he developed, he, he put her thinking together with, traditional Tibetan methods and came up with the call, what he calls handshake practice. And handshake practice, you don't deny what's going on. You actually tune into it, uh, into these kinds of patterns. Uh, and he has a method for really befriending them, uh, which neutralizes them in effect mm -hmm. and helps you get into meditation. So I think this was, this was, by the way, a radical departure from the way uh, Tibetan teachings had traditionally been given. And so uh, from some point of view, I think it was maybe a little risky. But from oh. another, I think it really hit home for Western students because um, the Tibetan teachings have traditionally started with the assumption that we're all okay, which actually turns out not to be true. 
<laughs> Wild understatement for us here yeah. in the West. What? Why do you think we have this? Uh, you know, we could talk about a little bit, and you mentioned in the book spiritual bypass, uh, which is seems to be a very pro, uh, prevalent uh, wow. phenomenon here for us in the right. West. And the concept of spiritual bypassing he learned from another student of his, John Wellwood, late John Wellwood, sadly. And John saw that many people hide from their problems in meditation practice and spiritual work without facing them. And uh, Sokni Rinpoche thought, hey, you know, it's really better if we just face what's going on and deal with it rather than try to hide it under the rug because it's going to come back and bite us. Mm. Yeah, therein dealing with the psychological aspects uh, of our lives, I think particularly in, in the West, is uh, is appropriate, very yeah. appropriate. Huh? Well, he, he found and has found that this really helps people much more than ignoring what's going on. Mm. But uh, he, he, there's what I said earlier about there's some methodology here that can really help. He had uh, mm-hmm. one of them, maybe you can describe the dropping practice. I mean, there's a well, way in uh, which... yeah. Uh, dropping practice, actually, which is, I think, the first practice. In the book, he shares a whole series of practices. Yeah. I give, I, really, I give the science. So the practices come from his side. But dropping is a very dramatic uh, way to start a meditation because uh, there's a kind of physical, you know, you raise your hand and you just let them drop mm. to your knees. And with that, your mind clears for a second. Mm. And that opens the way to meditation instead of you know, saying, well, now I'm going to meditate and I'm sitting on my cushion, but actually I'm bringing all of my habitual thoughts along with me. He's kind of breaking that habit right at the start. Mm. Yeah, no, that seemed like a great thing. And, and of course, the breath practices, which uh, are, extre- you know, getting, yeah. getting from that uh, center piece of our belief in the I, in our ego minds, and getting it into, well, Ramdas called it loving awareness. I think it's really very much uh, parallel. Yeah. Ramdas and I, uh, toward the end of his life, had a very deep discussion about the similarities oh, yeah? between Tibetan practice and the notion of loving awareness. I am loving awareness, mm. which was his mantra. And uh, essentially, in the Tibetan tradition, it's understood that in order to be truly compassionate, to be open to other people and their needs, uh, it, it, we need to let go of our own self-grasping, our own ego. That's a loving awareness. The, the awareness that lets you love is one that is not bound up by I, me, and mine. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. The usual thoughts that we build our self-concept out of. So a lot of Tibetan practice has to do with deconstructing, as we'd say in the West, letting go of all that, not denying it, but not clinging to it either, mm. letting it come, but letting it go. Mm. And that's very important. And particularly uh, in the cultivation of, they, they see that kind what they call emptiness, which is letting go, as essential to compassion, which is being open to the needs of others. Mm. Have you heard uh, Krishnas, our good buddy, talk about the movie of me? 
you wake up in the morning and you're the chief protagonist yeah. and the writer and the producer and and you even write your own reviews. <laughs> it's so fun. What he I does. actually I had dinner with Krishnadas last night. Oh really? Oh nice. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we were in the movie on me. We didn't talk about it. <laughs> uh, that's so great. So the uh, beautiful monsters. Now, do I love that expression? Mm, mm. That is so great. But I mean, he he talks uh, uh, about mindfulness going wrong. I mean, I thought that this was a very uh, particularly uh, apt mm. um, in, insight to make, especially with us in the West, where we are so fundamentally oriented towards achievement. And what does he say? I was mindful of, 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 of every thought, but didn't know what to do with them. This is when he was younger, right? Just noticing is not enough. It's good, but we need more. It's a powerful tool, but it needs to be complemented with other qualities to become balanced, to be an actual path. Uh, I learned we need loving kindness, practice, insight, and integrity. Yeah, talk about that. I mean, that's... Uh, well, you mentioned beautiful monsters, which is his concept. Um, hmm. Tara in Emotional Alchemy was, was talking about the same patterns, but then he amplified the concept to anything that grabs us habitually, that we ruminate about, that takes us over, that, that, that keeps us from really letting go. And he calls these beautiful monsters. They're monstrous because they keep us in their grip. They become beautiful when we can make friends with them, as he puts it which is to have, let them come up, say, oh, here you are again, my friend, but not be captured by them. Then you can let them go. Mm. So that's, that's his concept, beautiful mm. monsters. Yeah. Ram Dass had some sideways thing around that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he talked about uh, his schmooze. He yeah. got the schmooze, they got down to little schmooze, from big schmooze sure. to little schmooze, and that was all about perspective and... Uh, opening up some spaciousness. Well, you know, there's a certain generational uh, divide here because mm. people born after a certain year never saw Al Cap's cartoon strip, Little Abner, which oh, featured yeah. the shmoo. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. the that's where Ramdas got the notion of a shmoo. Mm. A shmoo is a little uh, kind of um, bowling pin-shaped being that uh, kind of gets grabs you and hugs you and won't let go. And Ramdas said, well, we all have our schmooze. Uh, and he's talking about the same kind of emotional habits, emotional patterns that we can't let go of. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's the same concept, just different language. Yeah. yeah. But everybody, we can um, create a friendship with these schmooze guys <laughs> beautiful <laughs> monsters yeah and, and uh, it's possible it is and, possible and the, the friendship is marked by being able to say oh here you are again welcome and i don't need you and i'm letting you go hmm. have a cup of tea maybe first yeah, yeah. before you go sure if you want yeah um I think his uh, also in his comments in this particular chapter, but uh, he talks about relative truth having two dimensions, functional, authentic relative truth and distorted, deceptive relative perception. I think uh, 
for everyone to have an idea of this relative to how our perspective on our lives, I think is mm -hmm. really important. Maybe talk about that. What he's referring to there is actually, I think, something he got from a conversation with Tara because she was grounded in the integration of mindfulness and cognitive therapy. She was really the first to write about that. Now it's very popular. But in cognitive therapy, uh, one of the goals is to identify your, the distortions in your thoughts, like nobody loves me. Mm. Well, actually, people do love you. So the nobody loves me is... Uh, the, the relative truth which is distorted and the fact that actually you are lovable and people do love you and have loved you is the more uh, realistic truth in it. So he's talking about those two aspects of relative truth. And by the way, the complicated little relative truth is contrasted in the Tibetan model with ultimate truth, hmm. which is beyond words, which is non-dual. But he's, he's not talking about that here in the book. He's talking about, uh, you know, the distortions that we all bring to these uh, emotional patterns. It's, it's in, in cognitive therapy and therapy generally, they try to help us identify where our thinking is distorted and straighten it out or, or uh, find a thought which is contrary to it, which is objectively true. Yeah. Very important because we all get so caught up in, in our belief system around this. Is yeah. to the and, littlest. you know, these personal belief systems are often shaped when we're just children, mm. and they're very hard to shape. They're lifelong. Uh, I mean, in Tara's book, Emotional Alchemy, she names uh, the fear of abandonment, uh, a sense of emotional deprivation that nobody empathizes with you or cares about you. Mm. Uh, you know, these are very primal kinds of, uh, habitual patterns, and they play out in our adult relationships in different ways. So if you have fear of abandonment, you may uh, be the first to jump out of a relationship because you're afraid that person right. is going to leave you. It, it shows up in all kinds of ways. So he's trying to help bring this to the meditation path, to the spiritual path mm. uh, in, the, in the book, Why We Meditate. Yeah. Boy, deconstructing all of that stuff from earliest uh, patterns that are created. Yeah. From the moment you get your name and, oh, wait, I'm a separate <laughs> entity now. Right. Oh, yeah. But here, have some uh, conditional love. We'll love yeah. you if you do this and if you do that. Right. The unstated thing is we won't love you if you don't. And yeah. that shapes a child very powerfully. Yeah. It's kind of amazing when you think about it, which is... Uh, and I always, you know, hear His Holiness Dalai Lama talk about what is so important going forward for our, for the world, for the, mm. for, mm. for humans is developing, is, is mothers having compassion. He said, that's why I am. I mean, you've heard him and heard him. You've been because of his own mother. Yeah, because of his yeah. own mother. Who was very loving. And what he's talking about is a certain kind of uh, caring parenthood, I think, mm. which then helps a child feel um, innately secure as they go through life, which is very important, really important. That's, that's the best foundation for loving kindness or compassion. Yeah. Mm. Boy, and we're in such a tough, tough 
world, aren't we? Mm. Where being able to cultivate that seems quite difficult. Well, I mean, that's why a lot of people go into therapy, but I think uh, Sotny's brilliance is in seeing that meditation practice, instead of being a place to hide from these things, can be a place where you deal with them. Mm. Right. Why we meditate. Yeah, that's there one good go. reason. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, well, let's, let's turn to the... Um, his thoughts around what he calls essence love, which could also be unconditional love, but it, but maybe uh, it'd be good mm-hmm. for you to characterize what he's well, I, talking about. I think his essence love is very similar to Ramdas's loving awareness. Mm. Actually, uh, it's an awareness which is not conditional, which just loves people as they are, which is compassionate, which means that person's not ego bound. Uh, but they so they can be open to the needs of others, and they can be caring and concerned about those needs. That's that's compassion. Hmm. So I think back to our time with Neem Karoli Baba, uh, and being quite young in our early twenties. For most of us, some of us were older, like Ramdas, uh, and and encountering that. Um, a non-polarized place, I would call it, where there's no us and them in this being, and there was just a pool of that you could enter into by virtue of just being in it, in that presence. That uh, essence, love was a good way to state. I mean, uh, sure. you know, just just oh, how yeah. we, you know, what we felt. I mean, well, what, what was your experience? So I think uh, Maharaja Nimkoli Baba was kind of stabilized in essence love. Mm. He was just there. Mm. And you felt that aura when you were with him. And it was contagious, I think. Uh, our friend Larry Brilliant put it really nicely. He said, the miracle wasn't that he loved us, mm. but that when we were with him, we loved each other. Yeah. Yeah. Extraordinary, really. so uh the the reality that we had um how should i say it a real rudder for the rest of our lives Mm. to be able to um, understand beyond intellect Mm. what that Mm. unconditionality was i mean when i i say this a billion times when i first met ramdas um, the day that I met him and we were just alone in, in this house that he was staying in in Montreal. And uh, there was this sense of I'm not here for Richard or Ramdas. There's just a pool here that we can be and whatever you need uh-huh. is available. And uh-huh. it was it created this trust, uh, intuitive trust that led me uh to go to India at that time. And uh, I understood uh, the reality, of course, of what was happening in that moment once I met Neem Karoli Baba. Then I understood, oh, shit, that's what Ramdas was about. <laughs> oh, this is it. Yeah. And uh, to, to it's, it's interesting because people would say, well, 
you got there, you got right in it, and now what's what's the problem? What's the problem, right? After all these years, decades, you know, what what is the problem with you still having neurotic stuff going on and you you mm. haven't exceed, mm. you know, you haven't transformed those habitual patterns and and it's called a life. Right? And uh I uh I I just I just think um what uh he uh took me Sokni um equates this essence love one of the ways in which he characterizes it is okayness a certain okayness oh, right nice. do you remember him yeah. talking about that yes uh that's the felt sense of ha- having essence love or being in essence love this sense of i'm okay okayness not just with myself but with things as they are uh and Mm, very uh, important right thing with things as they are it's, yeah. it's, it's equanimity i think yeah um and that's one of the signs of this and i think uh, it's one of the uh signs that a, a being has kind of uh found their way into essence love and stayed there uh one of the um I don't know how to put this but you know having been with Ingroli uh, Baba gives you a north star mm. gives you Rudder, a sense of what yeah. to aspire yeah. to yeah it doesn't necessarily mean you're instantly there where he is this is why unfortunately as well by the way this is why I got interested in meditation I went to Bodh did you go to Bodh Gaya no I wasn't in Bodh Gaya with you I went later, went later. I was in yeah. uh, Sri Aurobindo ashram where you all oh, were Oh okay Gaya. anyway it doesn't matter but Many people uh, in the Ninkoli Satsang ended up in Bogai studying Vipassana, which mm. is where mindfulness comes from. Mm. And uh, my feeling was that I, I wanted to work with my own mind and bring it somewhere nearer to where Ninkoli Baba's mind was. And that seemed to be a path that might go there. Uh, and um, I think that uh, one reason I've been happy studying with Sokni and his family is that I think that this is a, a well-established pathway mm. to that loving awareness or to that sense of okayness from mind essence. Mm. I love that word, uh, just okayness. You know, yeah. people have trouble with love and well, what's essence, <laughs> what does that mean? But right. okay ness we all understand <laughs> exactly it, you, we can be there that can happen and you know what i think we're all there from time to time moment mm. to moment the question is can we be there more can we be there in our relationships can we be there in our most difficult relationships can we be there when we're alone can we stabilize mm. um, yeah. these are all aspirational yeah no absolutely um by the way, you talk about Tara, uh, Tara's book, Danny's wife. Um, just uh, whoever's doing the show notes here, let's make sure we get that book into oh, a connective tissue uh, for people nice. to be able to find it on uh, in in the podcast. It's called Emotional Alchemy. Yeah. Mm. Where is she? We should bring her into this right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. So 
he he goes further into and uh, in, in talking about essence love. Um, it, it, he talks about the expression of love, you know, which is directed out world, and, and everybody is way familiar with you know what that means, you know, related to r- romantic love and parental mm-hmm. love and so on. Um, I. I think I remember uh, either doing something with Ramdas with a few other people at some retreat or, or, or something like that, where we talked about, uh, you know, people were dismissing romantic love or the love mm. of parental mm. love or friendship love mm. um, as that's not the thing. The thing is completely, it's got to be unconditional love or it's nothing. But isn't it true? The reality is all of all love has in it a, a kernel, a seed of that essence love. Is that not true? That's very nicely put. And I think that uh, all of them are on the same spectrum. It's all love. But I, I think that the... Uh, defining difference of, of, or a way to think of progress along that spectrum toward the essence love is whether is the degree of ego clinging. Mm. Um, mm. I love you because you love me, yeah. for example, or I just love you. Those are two very different statements, two yeah. different ways of expressing love. Yeah. I mean, he talks about um, this is something I haven't heard this term before. With the opposite of essence love being hollowness. Mm. That's a, a, an interesting concept. Talk about that. Well, with essence love, you have that sense of okayness, which means you're fine as you are. The sense of hollowness is that no matter what you have, no matter how much money, how much fame, or how, much, how many lovers you have, you feel uh, empty inside. It's not enough. So that's a kind of a des- inner desperation, mm. a hollowness. Mm. And I so. think it also is too common in modern life. You know, sometimes people feel it as loneliness. Sometimes they feel it as a yearning for something that they can't quite name, no matter what they get and no matter what they have. I have a, a friend who... Uh, is a wealth advisor. That means he tells rich people how to manage their money. And he knows many, many wealthy people. And he he is advocating something he calls true wealth, which is not being able to make a lot of money, but having friends, having rich relationships, having a spiritual life. Uh, In other words, not defining yourself by one strand of success, but by having a fuller life in itself. A little bit unusual, the money manager, I don't know, wealth manager. Yeah, well, good luck to him. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That would be revolutionary if that could start a trend. Um, but either he or Sokni or you talk about um, memories of unconditional love. I, I've always thought, and I've said to people whenever we've had this kind of a discussion, um, Particularly if they say, "Well, you've met Neem Karoli, Bob. You've met great teachers of from in one way or another." Mm. 
But uh, are those teachers available? That well, they are. Here's someone like Tokni who's available, and his his whole family. Sure. Is, and certainly many, many great teachers. Many come, great teachers. Come to the, uh, the West mm. pretty regularly. Yeah. Uh, so that's possible. Um, but I always say it's a matter of tuning into that intuitive mm, trust place. Mm. Mm. And how how can that happen? That can happen because it's 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 first of all it's not necessarily physical. Although yes, you can get a transmission from a physical teacher, but you know you you might have heard a piece of music and that suddenly put you into a state mm. where you were not polarized. There wasn't mm. that mm. me and them sure. kind of thing going right. on. Or read a book, or uh, you just saw Krishna, or you know be at a Krishnadas. Uh, chant concert and uh-huh. suddenly a moment I mean I've heard people I have so many people actually were had no idea about chanting or anything just happened somebody dragged them into one of his things his concerts and and then he would do what's called the Hanuman Chalisa 40 verses in praise of the monkey god you know which is oh, you know oh. part of our whole legacy Never, they'd never heard it before, and then suddenly they find themselves deeply uh, weeping or or deeply mm. absorbed. Mm. These kinds of things, uh, psychedelics, of course, is another uh, major mm-hmm. way. These kinds of things get integrated in, in your being, and you you they're a resource for that intuitive trust. Wow, this is it is. I have experienced it. It is real, and I I can relate with it in different situations yeah. as I go forward. I mean, true. Well, I think um, the most valuable part of such experiences, as you eloquently describe them, uh, is that you now know there's more than ordinary awareness. There's more than normal consciousness. There there are other possibilities. Uh, that have their own kind of richness, and there are paths to those possibilities. The reason I like and continue to like meditation um, is that it's a well-worn path toward a more lasting sense of exactly what you're describing. Mm, Yeah. And uh, I think it's said in here that these moments trigger what, uh, Tokni calls essence love. Mm. Any of these yeah. moments, and they can be casual. Um, but he also attention. says, I don't know if he says it in this book, but he does say that uh, these moments give us a glimpse of what's possible. They don't stabilize us in that. It's not like we're there forever. Uh, and um, I think we need to work on our minds to do that. Do you remember, uh, uh, Krishnadas told me this, that Maharaji said to some Westerners at one time, I've done everything for you. I leave yeah. you the mind. Yeah. And everyone, there was a collective, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are, right? And this is what this book represents us dealing with the mind and using meditative and other perspective practices. Exactly. What's interesting to me is that the uh, satsang, uh, who were those who were originally, Westerners who were originally with Nkrumah Baba, each have found their own path and you know their own reality about this, 
And, uh, you know, if you ask 20 satsang members what to do, they'll get 25 responses for sure. Mm. There's no uniformity, no one thing. You know, I would say, though, I mean, Mm. obviously the classic uh, representation of the path of bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion, Mm -hmm. is there. You know, and I think uh, that's a commonality. Absolutely, that's a commonality. Yeah. yeah. You know what the other commonality is to me, Danny, yeah. is um, the power of discriminative, discriminative wisdom, which mm. emanating from Buddhist uh, perspective. Um, I mean, look at all those. Um, you know, the retreats that we used to have in, in Maui. Well, we still do, actually. Mm-hmm. And now we're doing one in Boone, uh, North Carolina as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they all always had, and this was, you know, certainly Ram Dass's, uh in, input, very much so. Most of his friends, his deep, close friends, aside from the people he was in India with, with Neem Karoli, Bob, uh-huh. with Maharaji, were Buddhist well, Roshi Joan Halifax, you know, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, <laughs> on and on and on. Right. So there was a place in which it's it felt comfy for him to have these people there. And then whenever he would he would start talking about soul. And then as soon as he mentioned the word, he'd look over next to him at one of the Buddhist teachers <laughs> like, oh, I'm so sorry that I mentioned. They would laugh. <laughs> So, but but the truth is, most of us did go through that vipassana training. Even if men, you know, many of us perhaps did not follow through mm. with it. Mm. It's been a stable thing for me all of these decades, mm. uh, and I think for many people. Uh, but the discriminating wisdom uh, part of it, I think, is is a uh, a real uh, asset on the spiritual path. That in, I mean, you know, there's that famous story. Krishnadas and I, he had a bum knee, and, uh, and we were in Brindavan and told, don't come to see Maharaji at the ashram there. And, but he said, listen, you got to help me. I got to get over there. This is, I, I don't know what to do. I'm in such pain. So we went over there and we sat down with him. And, uh, you know, it's a famous thing where Maharaji got up and, went across the courtyard and started limping. And Krishna said to me, I bet he's, you know, he's <laughs> going to help me out. And he did. And then he sat down, never said a word about it. And then Krishna had a, um, his diary and he had uh, written some passage from Mahamudra, you know, famous Buddhist uh, text. And Maharaji had the translator translate a few lines of it. And when he did, he went, teak. That's right. Uh And then flipped the page, and there was a big picture of him. And he said to us, Who who's that? (laughs) And we were going, Yeah, you're just jiving us, you know. And we said, It's you. He said, Nay, Buddha. Uh That has stuck with both of us, you know, forever. Uh and the re and the highest praise he ever gave about other quote unquote saints, teachers or whatever were Tibetans. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I do know that, uh, according to Girija, another satsang member, Yeah, uh, the 16th Karmapa, who is very highly esteemed Tibetan, said of Ning Kroli, he's a Mahasiddha. Yeah, which, I heard that. Which is the highest praise. 
Yeah. Yeah. So there seems to be a convergence of uh, the Buddhist path and uh, this version of bhakti. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we don't have much time left, but I, uh, <laughs> I love. It. There, there's some little phrases that he comes up with, Tokni, um, and this one's called California compassion. Uh-huh. I love that. It is so right on, uh, but it's it's under a chapter called willingness to suffer. Now, here's something that we are not very good at at all. You yeah. know, as much as uh, I think Maharaji said, suffering brings grace, basically. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, a difficult thing. Talk about that. Well, everyone wants to avoid suffering. Yeah. Uh, but people who suffer... Uh, can learn great compassion. I think that's what that refers to. Uh, California compassion. Remind me what he means by that. Oh, he was saying, I like to tease people who would live in California because it's so beautiful. Here I am sitting in Ojai, California, like talk about (laughs) lovely and beautiful. Um, He said... uh, one night, a spiritual man living in California was getting ready for bed. He lit some incense and did a few minutes of compassion, quote-unquote, compassion meditation before climbing under his soft, organic sheets. Oh, I, I wish I... Um, yeah. Is he in this country right now? No, he's in Nepal right He's now. in Nepal. Yeah, he's made in Nepal. Uh-huh. Or he has a base, he has a monastery there. Uh-huh. And then right. Right. Yeah. And his brother Minger also has one in Nepal. In yeah, Kathmandu, very close right? to him. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. He wanted to feel fresh and look good the next morning, so it worked. So he was looking towards a f- beautiful, restful sleep. Right. But then the phone rang, and a friend was really sick and asked the man could take her to the hospital. He took a deep breath. Part of him wanted to be the kind of person who did that. <laughs> But he also he really wanted to sleep well and feel fresh in the morning. The desire for good rest won, and he apologized in a soothing voice. That's so funny. And said he couldn't do it, but he really hoped she found someone to take her. Really hoped she felt better. That's California compassion for you. Beautiful, beautiful, exactly. Uh, oh, God, we are something. No. Uh, Krishnadash just came back from a retreat with Garchin Rinpoche. Yeah, yeah. Garchin oh, Rinpoche is quite an old, uh, I think he's in his 80s now. Yeah. He was in a Chinese concentration camp for 20 years. I know. Because I actually was fortunate to meet him, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe 15 years ago. I actually yeah. was his driver when he was teaching yeah. in, in Los Angeles. For, then you uh, know he radiates compassion. Yeah. Having gone through deep, deep, Unbelievable suffering. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where does it come from with the the the, the these people, the Tibetans? Well, uh, he had a practice, which was to to see his own suffering uh, in an almost Christ-like way as. Uh, toning for everyone's sins, including his own, and to be compassionate even toward his torturers mm. because they were human beings too. Now that's an amazingly difficult and powerful kind of practice to have. And the situation he was in it gave him too many chances to practice it, mm. all too many. 
he met his guru in in uh, in prison, right? Uh, Garchen. Yeah. Yeah. Temple yeah. Mansel. Oh boy. Anyhow, there's so much more in here. We could go on uh, for quite some time. Uh, this book mm-hmm. is uh, is just chock full of helpful stuff. So everybody, I uh, listening, I highly recommend it. Um, I've actually, uh, in recent past, I mean, I see a lot of books come across because uh, publishers are sending me stuff for people to do podcasts all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this book is as notable to me as Pema Chodron, How We Live is How oh. We Die. Oh. That, that I actually went to India. Gee, we haven't even talked. Yeah, I was in India last October sitting in front of Trishul, and I was just around where you were, where we were in um, Kosani. Oh, really? Right? And you really? had that little cottage. We were up in the in the Gandhi yeah, sure. ashram, and you yeah, had the cottage yeah. below with Anasuya. Yeah. I was right. I found a place just, uh, you know, a mile down the road or yeah. something, smack oh. in front of Trishul and the whole <laughs> arc. Of the Himalayas. That's a and whole I, other conversation, which yeah. I hope we have one day. Yes, we will. <laughs> so I highly recommend this uh, in the same way that I, I recommended uh, Pema Chodron's book. And thank you. Thank you for putting this together with Sokni. And I yeah. hope actually to, to meet him one day. I'll have to try and keep track of when that uh, can. I mean, actually, no, Krishna Das told me he's giving a retreat at the end of. August or something. Actually, he's changed it to fall. Oh, really? September, I think. Oh. Oh, All no, right. no. He had to cancel that. Uh, it's going to be in April now. April 24. I don't know the date. Yeah. yeah it's next worth year. doing. He's one of those great teachers who comes to the West regularly, and anyone who wants to meet a great teacher, there you go. Sign up. There yeah. you go. No, there absolutely. are many. Luckily. Yeah. 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 That's mm-hmm. so great. So great to see you and hang out, pleasure. Danny. Thank you so much for being here. My uh, pleasure. Yeah, everybody, this is Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And Danny and my friends are all over that network. <laughs> so uh, enjoy, and we'll see you uh, next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>